with me what it must have been like that night when the son of God looked like he had lost the fight no heartbeat no breath no sign of life Jesus tasted death and it didn't feel right have you ever thought about that church really thought about that Jesus died three days in the tomb lifeless laid his remain the king with no crown looked like he had giving up his reins, but then something on Sunday started to change. You heard a blood beating in his veins, heart pumping, blood pulsing. Instantly, Satan felt his power break because the Son of God was dead, and now the Son of God was awake. And every breath he took was like a punch in Satan's face because the resurrection proves that we are no longer under sin but under his grace. So celebrate, church, because when Jesus went to the grave, you did too. And when Jesus rose from the dead, you became new. He said it was finished. Let your new life begin. Church, you can actually have freedom. Quit wallowing in your sin because the chains have been broken and the stones have been rolled away. 
God doesn't love the future you. He loves you today. You are clean. You are blameless. The curse has been squashed. That's what baptism is. It's showing you've been washed. So rejoice because we're not waiting for the verdict. He already said not guilty and his resurrection assured it. Because our whole lives we've been feasting on sin and unable to pay the tab. And Jesus walks in, look at that bill and says, I'll take care of that. So stop trying to pay your own debt. You can't and God doesn't expect it. The cross was payment given and the resurrection was payment accepted. So live in freedom, church, because you are free. The resurrection is like a stamp. It's a guarantee. It's a royal decree that says you are children of the king. So let's give them thanks, church, and let your voice and your life sing. to us. And Father, we thank you. Thanks be to God who has given us the victory because of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. How many of you are glad today that you have the victory? You're not trying to get it. You already got it. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. 
Amen. Some of you are not so sure about that, are you? Praise the Lord. We're going to talk about that. Why don't you be seated this morning again? Thank you for being a part of our service so far at Joy. And uh, y'all look good, as has already been said. So thank you for being a part of, of today. And um, I have some thoughts that I want to share with you this morning, as I always do. And I sort of feel like we could just go home right now and say we've had church. But you know what? We ain't going to do it. And uh, we're just going to keep on going. I, I have something, a few things that I want to share with you. And some of it comes from Isaiah 53, 6. It says that all we like sheep have gone astray. Each, each and every one of us, we've gone our own way. We've, we're all kind of like that sheep, every single one of us. And, you know, Easter, what we call Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, the Easter weekend uh, starts with Good Friday, you know, and then Resurrection Sunday. There's really two very distinct parts to it. The Good Friday service, I think, is what most people... M- Friday is what we most people would identify with, uh, any of the movies of Jesus as it relates to his Passion Week and the things that he went through. You know, usually you see a little bit of ministry and people love Jesus and then, you know, you see the religious leaders upset and jealous and they begin to plot and scheme and then there's a sham of a trial and charges are trumped up against him and then, uh, you know, we see the beatings, we see the whips, we see all of that stuff happen. We see him painfully die on the cross. It was a lot of agony and everything and he's dead, he's buried in the tomb, everybody's sad and then it's like the last 15 seconds of the movie, he's alive, you know, and that's that's a lot of our experience many times is we identify more with the cross, the pain, the agony and the suffering and the shame than we do Resurrection Sunday morning. And, and I think that sometimes we, we really miss a very valuable point, and, and, and we have a tendency, I think, at times to think that, well, you know, Jesus did what he did because he loved us, and, and he certainly loves us, and, and he did pay a price because of his love for us, and, and, and I think that a lot of us would agree and understand that the resurrection is not one of, but it is the most awesome display of the power of God that's ever been. That was the display of the greatest act of God's power ever. But it was, it was something even different or more than that. Jesus stepped into our lives. He stepped into the court of our lives because there were charges that were against us. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everybody is under the same predicament. Everyone has the same charges against them. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the gift of God, the gift of God is eternal life through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus stepped into that court, if you will, into that courtroom and said, I'll pay the price. I will pay the price. I will stand in the gap for humanity because there's no way they can pay this back. And I think that sometimes what we've heard in church, in the church world and what we've heard from people and certainly people outside of the church world, they will ask a very central question. If God loves me and if God loves the world, if God loves anyone or everyone, how could a loving God send a person to hell for eternity? If God loves everybody, then why would he send people to hell? And what about the people who've never, all the whatabouts and everything else, you know, and why, and and I want to bring hopefully a little bit of clarity for just a second this morning. First of all, God doesn't send people to hell. God's not the one sending. Hell is a place that is designed for people to pay for their sin. Hell is a place that is designed where you and I could go there and we could pay for our sin. Or, and this is the good news of the gospel, 
We could accept the payment that is already, Jesus already went there, and he already paid the price. In in a sense, and I can tell you're sort of struggling with this this morning, in a sense, it's sort of like hell is the place you go to pay. It's like the checkout line. It is. It's where you go to pay for your. For, and, and, and as I was thinking about this this weekend, I was thinking, you know what? A checkout line is actually a great way to describe hell. Because I don't know about you, but I'm not a big fan of checkout lines. I'm not a fan of lines. I'm not. And I think most of us are that way. And I have discovered recently why it's called a checkout line. I thought it was because you brought your stuff to the person, the cashier, and they would, you know, scan all of those items. That has nothing to do with checkout. Checkout is the action that I take when I'm standing in the line. Checkout is what I do when I'm pushing my cart towards the line. And I see 47 lines and lanes and six workers. And I begin to check out how many people are in those lines. And I begin to calculate, I begin to number them, I begin to count them. And then not only do I check out the number, because I've found that just because there's eight people in a line doesn't mean that it's going to go fast, because you got to check out the cart. And if there's that person that has two carts and a wad of coupons, that's hell. <laughs> it is, because you're back there and it's like, okay, my bananas are going to get brown before I ever get through this line. And, and we've all been in that. And that's the checkout line. We are going there to conduct and transact business. But Jesus stepped into our life, and he stepped into the checkout line, and he paid a price that you and I didn't owe. Now, if you want to, you can still stand in that line, and you can still go through the process, and you can still try to pay for your sin. Or you can simply accept the payment that's already been rendered. You can already accept what Jesus did. And here's what Jesus asks. This is what Jesus did. He said, I will willingly surrender my life. I will willingly give up my life on your behalf because I don't want you to be separated from the Father. And all I ask for you to do in return is to give your life to me. Surrender your life to my will, my way, and just give your life to me, and then you can skip the whole transaction, you can skip the whole payment, you can skip that stuff, and you can go to this place that I have prepared for you. How many of you think that's a pretty good deal? Amen. That's what Jesus did. That's part of what we celebrate this morning. Now, just like a lot of the world today, there were a lot of people in Jesus' day who didn't get it. And what religion had become in Jesus' day was a a, a system of beliefs and a system of standards that left most people out. And only a few religious people, only a few of the right people could ever be good enough to ever have any feeling or sense that maybe I might make it and, and everybody else was left to feel shame and guilt and humility or humiliation and everything else. A lot like the religious world today. And so Jesus steps into that world where people didn't understand. And some of the amazing things that I find, at least I think is kind of amazing, is that people who were not like Jesus at all liked Jesus. And people who you wouldn't think would like the message of Jesus liked the message of Jesus. They liked to hear him teach. They liked to hear him do the, the things that he did. The people that you would think would have liked to hear Jesus were the ones who didn't like Jesus at all. And there was constantly a battle between those. 
But I think it's very illustrative for us to understand this morning that we today in 2018, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, there should be something in us that is attractive to those that are maybe outside the kingdom of God. And that sometimes our lives devolve into such a thing that we think we're the ones who are right and we've got everything figured out and everybody else, well, we're not too sure of them, but we're okay. And we don't want to give others the audience. We don't want to give others the time. And that's what was happening in Jesus' day. And so Jesus has come with this message of God's love and grace, and he wants to show the Father to the world because the Father was misunderstood by everyone else. It It was extremely difficult and cumbersome, and nobody could get into the presence of God. And that left humanity feeling like God is aloof, he's distant, and he's far away. But that's not who God is, and that's what not, that isn't the heart of the heavenly Father. And so Jesus came to reveal that heart to humanity. And so we pick up the story. It's really a trilogy. There's three stories in one, and very familiar to a lot of church people this morning. But it says in Luke chapter 15 and verse 1, it's, and I find, I don't know why, but I just think this is funny. Uh, tax collectors and other notorious sinners. So, I mean, like tax collector had their own category of notorious sinner. So there's tax collector and everybody else who was really, really, really bad. And, but here's what we find out. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. People who weren't like Jesus liked to listen to Jesus. There was something about what Jesus said that was different, that had life, that had some meaning and punch to it. It was different than the religious dogma of the leaders in that day. And plus, Jesus accepted people where they were at. Verse 2, this made, and I like this too, this made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain. They were whining and moaning and groaning about what? That he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. (gasps) Jesus ate with sinners? What? Are you kidding me? They were upset. They were mad about this. And Jesus, and all through the New Testament, we see this phrase from, I shouldn't say all through, but from time to time you see the phrase, and Jesus knowing their thoughts, or Jesus perceived their thoughts, then he said. And Jesus began to answer the heart question before the question was ever asked. And I think, and I can't prove it, but I think that's what was happening here, that Jesus understood the religious leader's heart. They under, he understood what they were asking. He understood what was going on on the inside of them. And so he began to tell them a story, actually three stories. He began to try to answer the question, why would Jesus eat with sinners? And, and, and it was different than, you know... It, Eating with sinners in that day meant that when you associated with them, you accepted them for where they were, what they, you, in a sense, almost condoned where they, what, what they, were, where they were at and what they were doing. And it was, it was awful if you were a religious person to associate with sinners. It sounds like a, a lot like Christianity today. We're not going to hang around those ugly people, those mean people, those sinners. We're not going to be around those sinners. Well, guess what? If nobody's around those sinners, you might as well say they can just go to hell. Because it's up to us to be light in darkness. Amen? And that's what Jesus did. Jesus stepped as the light of the world into a world that was in darkness. It was so dark it didn't even recognize the Son of God. That's how estranged and how distant they'd become from the Father. And so Jesus wants to give a cure. He wants to explain to the religious leaders, here's why I'm eating with sinners and why I think you should be eating with sinners also. Verse 2 or verse 3. So Jesus used this illustration 
And the illustration is one, and, and I could just read the verses, but I want to tell you the stories as they go along. Jesus used an illustration to help them understand, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. And he said, there was a shepherd. He said, in fact, you would probably all do this. If you had a hundred sheep and you lost one of the sheep, wouldn't you go out and try to find the one sheep? And after you found him, you'd be like, woohoo, I found the sheep. Now, I think, as I've thought about this, I think that if I was in that crowd, if you were in that crowd, we might sort of have the idea, you know what, Jesus, I'm not so sure that's a good idea. Because if I went to look for the one, and I spent four or five hours a day or two looking for it, how do I know that when I come back after finding the one that I didn't lose five more? And now I got to go back and I got to go find the other sheep that I lost. Or, or if I leave and I'm not there to protect, then what if a wolf comes and scatters the whole flock? I'm stuck. I lose 99 to gain the one. It, does, it seems reckless. It seems foolish. It seems stupid to do that, Jesus. I'm not sure that I would do that. And Jesus presses, presses the issue. And he says, you know what? When you find that one sheep, man, there's a party. Everybody's happy. Everybody's rejoicing. And he can tell that the religious leaders, they don't get it. They don't understand what he's talking about. They might even be inwardly arguing. And so then he says in verse 8, or take another illustration. And then he begins to tell about a woman who had 10 coins. And she misplaces, loses one of the 10 coins, and these coins were valuable. They say that, you know, some of the things I've read said that one coin was worth about 10 days' wages. And so these coins were obviously very valuable. How many of you ever lost anything of value? Anyone? And you kind of like turn to play. How many of you know you will do things that you would not normally do when you lose something of value? I would think that as a order, normal order or course of, we were with our, our grandkids yesterday and, and our grandson said he, he's developing a business where he goes around to the neighbor yards and he's going to pick up dog poop. Now most of us don't like dog poop at all, right? And most of us wouldn't spend time digging through dog poop, would we? But how many of you know people that have used sticks and gloves to dig through dog poop because they found out they thought their dog ate something that was extremely valuable? You will dig through poo to find something of value. Happy Easter, everyone. Sorry, that's a little more honest than maybe what... <laughs> What I'm telling you is what Jesus was trying to say. When, when, when something of great value is lost and when she found the coin, she called friends and she called associates and said, we're going to have a party. Isn't that kind of crazy and extreme to have a party for a coin? And that perhaps finding the coin and throwing a party would cost more than the coin was worth. It seems reckless. It seems, it seems fiscally irresponsible to do something like this does not make sense and yet Jesus is trying to tell the religious leaders that's the heart of the father the father will do things that seem reckless that seem extreme that don't make sense in order to find things that are lost and I don't think I think that is lost on us I don't think we understand how much the father loves and how much he wants people to know and to be welcomed home and to experience the love and the grace of the father and so Jesus can tell that his listeners maybe are starting to get it and they're leaning in just a little bit more and, and, and is starting to grasp it and so then Jesus presses it a little bit farther when we read verse 11 and it's a familiar story to church people and it says this to illustrate the point further he's pressing the issue and he's about to he's about to kind of twist the, the the tables just a little bit and he says this Jesus told them this story a man had two sons the younger son told his father I want I want my share of the estate now before you die now for us these are just words we've heard the story we've read it but I think and some of the things that I've looked at and, and studied after, 
This is shocking to the, to the listeners. The people who heard Jesus say that may have probably went, oh, really? That, 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 to declare to your dad, I want my inheritance now, you're not dying quick enough for me. I want you dead and out of the way so that I can get what's mine now. To, to say that is one of the most dishonoring things in their culture that you could ever say to your father. It would dishonor your dad. It would dishonor your household. It would dis, I mean, people would disown you for that kind of attitude. And what Jesus says next is even more shocking to the listeners because it says, so his father agreed to divide his wealth between the sons. Not only was it disrespectful and dishonoring to the father, now the father takes this a step farther. And the father says, okay, I'll do it. And they're all like, why would he do that? If anything, that son should be kicked out. If anything, that son should be disowned. If anything, that whole community should rise up against that son and never let him into that community again. He will never work here. He will never live here. He will never be a part of this ever again. That's their thinking. But again, Jesus wants to declare and, and, and reveal the heart of the Father to the religious leaders and to everybody who is listening. And, and many of you know the story, and, and, and as I said, we'll take this in, in Pete's parts. Pete's. I almost said peeps. No, parts and pieces. That was parts and pieces all coming out of my mouth at the same time, and it became peeps. But anyway, we're going to be looking at this over the next couple of weeks. Let me say that just a little bit better. And I think that most of you know the story. Here's the young son, the younger son, and he gets his inheritance. And after a few days, he leaves his father's house and he goes on a journey. And the Bible says he travels to a distant land. And once he's in that distant land, he begins to spend the money wildly. And, and the King James kind of sanitizes it. He spends it on riotous living. Other translations says he spent it, you know, partying and with prostitutes and all this other stuff. But he arrives at a point where now the money is gone. And as life is, remember, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all gone our own way. And what seems to happen after a time of us going our way, suddenly circumstances around us begin to turn. And that's what happened for this young son because as he had spent all of his money, now the land is plunged into a famine and, and, and the tough and the hard goes to impossible. It is impossible for him now. There's no way for him to earn any money. There's no way for him to sustain himself. And so he arrives at a place that living in a pig pen, eating pig food is a good alternative for him. And he finally comes to himself and says, you know what? <laughs> My father's servants have it better than I have it right now. And usually around this part of the story, that's when most church people begin to check out. Because we've heard about the prodigal son, and we understand that the prodigal son is somebody who's running away from God, and we sort of look at ourselves, and we're not running away from God. We're, we're in the family of God. We're born again. We're saved. We're good people. But I think that many of us, if not all of us, at times are more like the prodigal son than we would like to admit to ourselves. Because at the end, really, at the, at the core of the story is a young man who made some stupid, terrible, horrible decisions. Anybody identify? We've all done stupid things, made bad decisions that leave us distant from the Father. 
And many times that distance from the Father makes us feel like we can't come back. And many of us have been a part of a religious system that makes us feel guilty and ashamed. And we're pretty sure the Father's not going to like us anymore. We're pretty sure that God's mad at us. I remember talking to a man several years ago in this church, and they've moved since. But, but he said this. He said to me, he said, Pastor Brian, the church that I went to made it pretty clear to me that they did not like me they didn't like the sin, the life that I was living, and, and, and they felt that I shouldn't be a part of them. And he said, because of that congregation, I thought that was God's attitude toward me, that, that really God didn't like me very much. And he said, to be totally honest with you, feeling is mutual. I, I don't like God that much. And I think that for a lot of followers of Christ, for a lot of Christians, we're kind of okay with the distance. As long as we're not out, as long as I can say I'm a child of God, the distance is okay. There are some people who it's like, you know what, there's too many rules. There's, there's too many restrictions. I, I want to go my way. And as I've said to you as a congregation often, there will come a time in your followership of Christ that what you want for you will be different than what God wants for you. And growth will happen or growth will not happen at the answer of that chaos and indecision of your life. And you say, all right, God, I'm going to forget what I want to do, and I'm going to do what you want to do. You've taken a step closer to God, and you've grown. But unfortunately, we make decisions like this young man did, and we find ourselves more distant from God. And we're okay with that distance because I talked to a man a couple of weeks ago, actually about a month, maybe a month and a half ago now. He had been through some very difficult, difficult moments. And, and we're just having breakfast together, and he said, you know, to be honest with you, and I'm trying to encourage him, he said, just, just to be honest with you, he said, me and God are on a timeout right now. I'm like, What? He goes, I'm mad at God. He said, I don't know, why did God not come through for me? I, I, I did stuff in the church, and I worked, and I did. He wasn't talking about this church. He said, I've done stuff, and, 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 and it seems like for all the stuff that I've done for him, he should have done this for me. And he said, you know what? I, I, basically saying, I, I'm distant from God, and I like it this way. I don't want to get close. And so I think that sometimes we are more like the prodigal son than what we perhaps want to admit that we are. See, all of us like sheep, we've gone astray. We've all gone our own way. At times, we've all made decisions that have left us farther from God, farther from the Father. We're distant. And can I tell you this morning that that distance is not just geographic. That distance is a heart issue. It's not a geographic issue. It is a heart issue. It's like divorce. And I'm sure that this young man, that he probably had left home long before he left home. It's like people, couples don't just wake up this morning and say, yeah, I think let's get divorced today. No, that divorce begins to happen months or years in advance. And the same, that distance had been percolating in his heart for a long time. And church, I'm here to tell you this morning that sometimes that distance can be percolating in our heart and we have to be, we have to be sensitive and we have to be aware. And so we pick up this story. And again, as I said, we're going to look at it more in the weeks to come. But in verse, verse 17... And I think that part of the heart of the prodigal son, and the prodigal is the prodigal because he walked away from the father. And, and, and that brings up another point that I should have mentioned to you. In the first two stories, the sheep wandered away and the coin was misplaced. But in this story, Jesus changes it up just a little bit. And you have a son that willfully made the decision to leave. But in all three stories, we find that there's rejoicing. Great. And, and actually, the first two stories, they searched and they searched and they searched. But the third story, the father didn't go anywhere. He waited for the son to come back. And Jesus was telling the religious leaders that were there, basically saying to them that, you know what? God searches for lost things. That's why I'm here. But your children 
And you've made a decision. You've made a decision to separate yourself and others from God. And God's going to sit there, but he's going to wait. He, he loves you as much as he does everybody else. But, and he's just asking you, please, come home. Just come home. That's, that's really all he wants to do. And so in verse 17, we read this. When he finally came to his senses, this is the son. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father. And he begins to re rehearse this speech. I will begin to go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. I have no right to claim sonship. I have no right to the house. I have no right to anything. But, Father, if you will just take me back as one of your slaves, I will happily serve you as a slave. So he returned home, verse 20. He returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. And filled with love and compassion, he ran. He ran. And this is another moment where the audience may have almost gasped. What are you talking about? Men of this stature, men of this position, men like this, they don't run for anything. They're dignified, and they're leaders, and they have authority. And this man wouldn't run. And his listeners were like, Jesus, you, you, I, I can't take I, This would not happen. This wouldn't happen. Men like this don't run. It is undignified. It is humiliating. And besides, the son didn't deserve it. If anything, the father should run after the son and kick him in the backside and kick him right out of town. And all of the townspeople should get around this kid and push him out. He does not deserve anything at all. And yet, the father with joy ran to his son. And one thing I was reading, it said this. It said that the father ran through humiliation because of joy. And this was humiliating for, for a man of his stature to run. And people in that day, they wore robes. And he would have to lift up his robe, exposing his legs and who knows what else. Maybe as he's excited and he's running and everything is going on. And he's running to his son. And it would be humiliating. It would be such a thing that people would look at him and say, why are you doing what you're doing? But Jesus didn't. The, the father didn't care because the son that was lost is coming home. And there was such love and rejoicing in his heart. And the listeners are like, that is humiliating. You should never do that. And I think that perhaps Jesus was thinking in his heart at that moment, you have no idea what I'm about to do for you. You don't understand. You do not know that you are like the prodigal son. You religious leaders here that are looking down your nose at these sinners, these tax collectors, you think that you're really something, but you're not. But I'm here because I love you. And I'm about to endure the most humiliating thing that a human being could endure. I'm going to give my life. I'm going to be charged with charges that are false. And I'm going to endure a trial that has already been decided. And I'm going to be nailed to a cross. But before that, I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be stricken. And I'm going to be smitten. And a crown of thorns is going to be pounded upon my head. And they are going to lay me on a cross. And they will nail my hands. And they will nail my feet. And they will set me upright for everybody to laugh at, everybody to ridicule, everybody to point their finger at and say, look, that person said he was God and he can't even save himself. He said, you have no idea what I'm about to do because I love you. And you have no idea the humiliation that I'm about to endure because of the joy, because of the love that I have for you. And it says in the book of Hebrews that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame and that he laid it all aside 
because he saw you and he saw me, the recipients. And you might be here this morning and you might think that your life has been offensive, that you might have done something that God could never forget or that maybe God is going to maybe accept you, but you're just going to always be like a second-class citizen in the family of God. Come next week because what you're going to hear is that the father's response to the, to the son coming home was like, Give him a brand new robe. Cover up his sin and his shame and put a ring on his finger because he's a part of this family again. And not only that, put some shoes on his feet because there's a journey and a path. There's a walk that I have for him and, and, and something powerful. There's a total message of restoration. And that's what God wants to do for you and he wants to do for me. So would you bow your heads with me this morning? And Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you so much. But Father, we know that we all have this tendency like sheep to go our own way. That we all have this tendency to be like the younger son where we demand our way, we demand our rights, we demand I want what I want and I want it now, but we often find ourselves in trouble. We find ourselves distant from you. And Father, we also know that that's not the way to live. We also know that that isn't the way that brings peace. It isn't the way that brings fulfillment. So Father, we... We say to you this morning, we're sorry. We don't mean to be distant. It's just gotten comfortable distant. It's just gotten easy distant. Father, I'm taking a step closer to you this morning. I'm making a decision one step at a time to be a better follower of you. If you're here today this morning, you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. Jesus said, if you want to see the kingdom of heaven, you need to be born again. It is a decision that you make. If maybe this whole checkout line thing made sense to you this morning and you're ready to accept the payment that Jesus made, it is a faith transaction. You believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess with your mouth that he is Lord and salvation becomes yours. It's something that is, has been simplified. Christianity is not easy, but it is simple. And so if you're here this morning say, Pastor Brian, I am ready to make Jesus the Lord of my life. I'm ready to accept the payment and, and ready to surrender my life to him. Would you just lift your hand? I want to lead you in a very simple prayer. I'm not going to ask you to do anything else other than pray with me. If that's you this morning, just hold your hand up real high. Hallelujah. Just hold it up real high. Hallelujah. Yes, yes, sir. Thank you. Anyone else this morning? Anyone else this morning? Just hold your hand up real high for a moment. Yeah, thank you. Thank you back there. Thank you, guys. Anyone else? Yes, sir. Thank you. Hallelujah. Anyone else? I think I saw a hand there. God. Hallelujah. Would you, would you pray this prayer with me? Heavenly Father, I come to you today in Jesus' name. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. I believe today you died for me. Your blood was shed for me. You paid the price that I owed. But you're alive today. And you give me victory today. I thank you that you bring to me your life, that you accept me into your family. I'm one of your children now. I believe that, and I receive forgiveness in Jesus' name. And Father, I thank you for these that have prayed this prayer for the first time, that you who are the author of our faith, faith is also the finisher of our faith. And Father, I thank you that you began a good work in this congregation, that you begin today a good work in each of these people, and you will complete and finish it in the name of Jesus. And I thank you for that, Heavenly Father. Amen.